Hi, welcome everybody to the third edition of the Apologetics on Census Fidelium. This is your host, Steve Cunningham, CensusFidelium.us, and of course, by our YouTube channel. We're going to focus on the Eucharist today. Uh, this weekend, we're, uh, while we're recording, is the Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, the official day was Thursday. Today is the external solemnity of Corpus Christi. So we're going to look at the Eucharist, and we're strictly sticking with the scriptures on this. We'll get into de deeper detail later on, like we said before during the other episodes. So let's get back to the beginning. Exodus 12, you got verses 14, 17, 24. We see that the Feast of the Paschal Lamb is a perpetual ordinance. It lasts forever, and it hasn't yet been fulfilled. In Exodus 29, 38-39, God commands the Israelites to offer the lambs upon the altar, the word offers the same verb that Jesus would use to institute the Eucharist offering of himself. In Exodus 12:5, it states that the Paschal lamb that was sacrificed and eaten had to be without blemish. In Luke 23, 4 and 14, John 18, 38, Jesus was the true Paschal lamb without blemish. Remember when Pilate was standing there and says, I see nothing wrong with this man. That was another way of saying that he was without blemish. In Exodus 12, 8 and 11, the Paschal Lamb had to be eaten by the faithful in order for God to pass over the house and spare their firstborn sons. And remember, you just couldn't eat some of it. You had to eat all of it. In Exodus 12, 47 and Numbers 9, 12, the Paschal Lamb's bones could not be broken. John 19, 33, none of Christ's bones were broken. Recall that the manna that came down from heaven is a foreshadowing of Christ, the true bread from heaven. And by the way, a little tidbit, the amount of manna falling down from the sky would accumulate for about 300 grain cars for 40 years. That's 365 days, obviously, and on twice on Fridays, so 600 on Fridays. So that's a lot of bread that was coming down. Now, the book of John is the best, obviously, for the apologetics on the Eucharist, also for baptism as well. And John wrote his gospel, you know, how everybody had an audience and John's was basically to write against Serenthus, who was the arch-heretic at the time. There's a uh, tradition that goes back to saying that when John was in one of the, uh, not the library, but one of the baths, and he heard Serenthus was in, and he immediately left. And he told everybody why he was leaving and saying that he didn't want to be in the building when it collapsed on Serenthus's head. And uh, but anyway, Serenthus was one of the fathers of Gnosticism. Uh, Simon the Sorcerer was the father, if you were wondering. Some of the heresies that Serenthus was spewing was that he was an Ebionite, which denied the divinity of Christ. Uh, there was levels of eminence, and Christ was at the lowest of this level. Uh, he was a great man, Christ was, but pure spirit, not God. So because of that, if you notice, John's Gospel uh, hits on the divinity of Christ more than all the other ones, because you see the I am, I am, I came down from heaven type deal. Because it's going after the, it's talking about the divinity of Christ, the attack, the the attacks that Serenthus was doing. So Serenthus and his group was leading false masses at the time. So they get to the consecration part, they wouldn't do anything like that. But everything else kind of looked the same almost. They taught a division: spirit is good, matter is evil. And he said, and Marcion later was combated by Saint Irenaeus. He said there were two gods. He said God did not have a body, but was pure spirit. The docetus means to seem, so that Christ seemed to eat or seemed to have a body. Notice in 1 John 4, 1 through 4, St. John says, Whoever says Christ has not come in the flesh, the same is Antichrist. So what do you think they thought about the Eucharist? 
said what they said was purely symbolic. Basically, Protestants agree with the heretic John is writing against. If they can see this, it's probably not a good side to stand on. <laughs> In Brant Petrie's book, uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, you'll see that the Christ would have, as a kid, would have seen lambs being attached to basically crosses and being, you know, after their blood, you know, blood up to their ankles or something like that on the, on the ground. But think of millions of lambs being put on crosses. And obviously Bethlehem was named the house of bread. Uh, John the Baptist points out, behold, the lamb of God. Uh, so what you, again, what you do with the lamb, you kill it and eat it. The beginning of John 6 starts is in the miracle of the fishes and loaves. Christ kind of sets them up for you know for the Eucharist here. In John 6, 4, Jesus is in Capernaum on the eve of the Passover and the land where the lambs are getting gathered to be slaughtered and eaten. Look what he says in the gospel there. Then in John 6, 35, 41, 48, and 51, Christ says four times, I am the bread from heaven. It is he himself, the eternal bread from heaven. He knew what he was going to do. Again, John's writing this saying, you know, against the Gnostics who did not believe in his divinity. And Christ is here saying, I came down from heaven. I came down from heaven four times in this small section. And even before this, in John 6, 30, the Jews asked, what sign do you show us? And you got to think about this. What just happened? He just fed 5,000 people. That was just the man. They didn't got the women and children. And then they start pounding their chests. You know, Moses gave us manna. That's when Christ starts talking about, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he draws a, a parallel between the manna and the desert, which was physically consumed, and this new bread, which must be consumed, which is himself. In John 6, 51, 52, then Christ says that the bread he is referring to is his flesh. And the Jews take him literally and immediately question such a teaching. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? In John 6, 53, 58, Christ does not correct their literal interpretation. Instead, he eliminates any metaphorical interpretations by swearing an oath and being even more literal about eating his flesh. In fact, Christ says four times we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Throughout John 6, 23-53, in these verses, the Greek text uses the word phago nine times. It literally means to eat or physically consume. In John 6, 54, 56, 57, and 58, he uses an even more literal verb translated as trogo, which means to gnaw or chew or crunch. This increases the literalness and drives the message home that Christ literally gives us his flesh and blood to eat. The word trogo is only used two other times in the New Testament, Matthew 24, 38, and John 13, 18. And it always means the literally gnaw or chew meat, while fago might also have a spiritual application. Trogo is never used metaphorically in Greek. Furthermore, Jesus uses the word as translated as sarx. Sarx means flesh, not suma, soma, S-O-M-A, which means body. For example, John 1, 13, 14, 3, 6, 8, 15, 17, 2, Matthew 16, 17, 19, 5, 24, 22, 26, 41, Mark 10, 8, 13, 20, 14, 38, and Luke 3, 6, 24, 39, which provides other examples in Scripture where sarx means flesh. It is always literal. Further, the phrases real food and real drink used in John 6, 55 uses the words which means really or truly, it would only be used if there were doubts concerning the reality of Jesus' flesh and blood as being food and drink. Thus, Christ is emphasizing the miracle of his body and blood being actual food and drink. 
in John 660, as many Protestants or anti-Catholics are today, the disciples that are there are scandalized by his words. They even ask who can listen to it, much less understand it. To the unlimited mind, it seems grotesque. In 61-63, Christ acknowledges their disgust. He uses the phrase, the Spirit gives life. It means the disciples need supernatural faith, not logic, to understand his words. In John 3-6, Christ often uses the comparison of spirit versus flesh to teach about the necessity of possessing supernatural faith versus natural understanding. In Mark 14-38, Jesus also uses the spirit-flesh comparison. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we must go beyond the natural to find the supernatural. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 3, 3, Romans 8, 5, and Galatians 5, 17, Paul also uses the spirit-flesh comparison to teach that unspiritual people are not receiving the gift of faith. They are still in the flesh. So in John 6, 63, Protestants often argue that Jesus' use of the phrase, the spirit gives life, shows that Jesus was only speaking symbolically. However, Protestants must explain why there is not one place in Scripture where spirit means symbolic. As we've seen, the use of spirit relates to supernatural faith. The Greek for spirit is pneuma. In John 4.24, God is called spirit, pneuma. That doesn't mean he's symbolic, is it? Hebrews 1.14 tells us the angels are spirit, pneuma. In the scriptures, the word pneuma is never used anywhere in scripture to mean symbolic. Then in John 6.66 and 67, Many of his disciples left. This is the only teaching where anybody left Christ. They reacted to his literal interpretation that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. At this point, these disciples really thought Christ had lost his mind, basically. If they were wrong about the literal interpretation, why wouldn't Christ, since he's a, the best teacher, the greatest teacher ever, have corrected them? Why didn't Christ say, you know, hey, come back here. I was only speaking symbolically. I was, you misunderstood me. No, he doubled down during those, during those passages, and they knew what he was saying, and he knew that they were right in their thinking, and they rejected it and walked away, and he let them walk away. He turned to the 12 remaining and asked them, do you also want to leave? And that was when St. Peter said, where should, I, where should we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Kind of like saying, we have no idea what you're talking about, but we, <laughs> we're going to stick with you. Now, you might hear things like uh, people, Protestants saying that Jesus spoke metaphorically about himself. So like in John ten seven, when he says that uh, I am the door. But notice no one ever thought that he was talking about being a piece of wood. They understood him to speak metaphorically. Another example in John 15, 1 and 5 was Christ was saying, I am the vine. Again, no one asked if he was a literal vine. In John 6, Christ's disciples did ask about his literal speech that this brethren was his flesh which must be eaten. He confirmed that his flesh and blood were food and drink indeed. Now the phrases eat flesh and drink blood did have in a symbolic meaning in the Hebrew language and culture of our Lord's time. Passages include Psalm 27, 1, 2, Isaiah 9, 18 through 20, Isaiah 49, 26, Micah 3, 3, and Revelation 17, 6 and 16. In each case, we find eating flesh and drinking blood used as metaphors to mean to persecute or to do violence to, to assault or to murder. Now, if Christ was speaking metaphorically, the Jews would have understood him to be making an absurd statement, quote, saying like, quote, unless you persecute and assault me, you shall not have life within you. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you do violence to me and kill me, you shall not have life within you. That's if we're using that 
uh, logic in this. And besides being an absurd understanding of these words, there is one further problem with the metaphorical view. Christ would have been encouraging his hearers to commit violent mortal sins. Or they might try saying that the Levitical law condemns eating blood in Leviticus 17.10. And you can just say that well, if we're, we're going to be consistent with Levitical law, then we must also perform animal sacrifices, lambs, pigeons, turtle doves, according to Leviticus 12, 8. But you remember, we're Christians. We're not under Levitical law. We're under a law of the spirit and life of Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 2 talks about. And Hebrews 7, 11, 12 tells us the Levitical law has passed away with the advent of the new covenant. Recall, St. Paul emphasizes the truth of real presence. Quote, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 1 Corinthians 11, 27-29 If the Eucharist is merely a symbol of the Lord's body and blood, then St. Paul's words here make zero sense. For how can one be guilty of the body and blood of our Lord if it's merely a symbol? This Greek phrase for being guilty of one's body, someone's body and blood is a technical way of saying guilty of murder. Again, if the Eucharist is merely a symbol of Christ and not Christ himself, this warning would be drastically overblown. Finally, St. Ignatius of Antioch, the disciple of St. John the Apostle and successor of St. Peter as Bishop of Antioch, wrote in the year 107 AD on his way to get killed in Rome in his epistle to the Sumerians, quote, They, the heretics, abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of the Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. Even Martin Luther himself admitted that the early church was unanimous in the literal interpretation of Christ's words in John 6, quote, Who but the devil hath granted such license of wrestling the words of Holy Scripture? Whoever read in the Scriptures that my body is the same as the sign of my body... It is only the devil that imposes upon us by these fanatical men. Not one of the fathers, though so numerous, ever spoke thus. They are all of them unanimous. It's from the Luther's Collective Works, Wittenberg edition, number 7, page 391. Well, that will wrap it up for this episode. But like I said, we'll just dive in deeper and deeper the longer we go about this. We'll just do the base, get the baselines first, and we'll just add on throughout this uh, series. A couple books you might want to get is Father Minnelli's book on the Eucharist. It's fantastic. And that will definitely help grow your devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. Well, happy Feast of Corpus Christi. Uh, God bless and Mary keep you. Remember to check us out on www.sensifidelium.us and check out the YouTube channels. Uh, share, subscribe. Even the subscriptions really don't count that much. And Google's doing their demonetization stuff right now. And But uh, hit the bell. Uh, you'll see a bell underneath the videos to make sure you get the alerts when a new uh, video comes up. And uh, continue to support. Uh, we don't care how you support. As long as you uh, support us, got pay, uh, if you go to the censusfidelium.us page, you'll see the different level ways you can do it, PayPal, Stripe. We're adding Bitcoin sh soon, so that'll be an option. Well, God bless and Mary keep you.